0: Hi guys, if you need anything, just let me know. This, this podcast is not that important, really. Uh,
1: I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just an idiot. Um... the paint podcast special episode bound art book fair edition volume one welcome i'm your host anthony tino we're doing something a little bit different this week on into the paint where i actually did several interviews at a live event at the whitworth last weekend in manchester at the bound art book fair it was great to be there Uh, bound art book fair has been going since 2017 Usually happens in the Whitworth. Of course, there were some years during the pandemic where they had to go online, and they were one of the few fairs that made a successful transition and had a great digital book fair that year. I tabled as a podcast and showed um, a couple of publications that I had published in the past or some recent zines, including... Um, The very famous Baby Grace. If you listen to this podcast, you might have heard me talk about that once or twice. The morning of the 24th of November is where this story starts. And it starts with me waking up in an absolute panic. Because that morning, I was actually headed to the towner Eastbourne to see the submissions to this year's Turner Prize Or the shortlisting of this year's Turner Prize. And um, it was the second time I've been there. It was a great experience. I definitely recommend a day trip if you're based in London. Aside from the Turner Prize artworks themselves, there's also amazing public artwork through the city. I saw one of my favorite artworks of all time by... One of my heroes, Michael Rakowitz, um, The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, is outside the towner. So if you can spend some time, definitely go and check it out. Immediately after seeing the works at the towner, I sprinted back to London, finished out the, the work day, and then it was to the studio to pack quickly. I'd been doing some painting that week, thinking about how my table would look, thinking about The logo that I was going to use for the table grabbed some microphones grabbed my computer and then I was off and I had a really funny um, trip up to Manchester where this very chatty individual sat next to me and uh, he said he was from Tunisia and he was telling me all these hilarious business ideas that he has. Um, I didn't catch his name but he gave me some good ideas said he was going to go and see the football In Manchester that weekend I hope he had a good time I had a really good time in Manchester I got in, it was a little bit late I met up with the Bens of New Dimension In the Northern Quarter We hung out till late And kind of saw a little bit of the city that night Was surprised actually at how How insane the drinking culture seems to be in Manchester People were really going for it Um, But it also kind of just reminds me of other northern cities I've been to. I don't really know what that means. I think I have to get out of London more. Um, And we were staying kind of slightly outside the city. So the next day on the 25th, I was just really exhausted going into this fair. But we had a proper Weatherspoons English breakfast across from the Whitworth And then we set up our tables, I was on the ground floor, was surrounded by some other excellent exhibitors, and a little bit about the Whitworth. It is a gallery which is driven by a mission to work with communities to use art for positive social change, and actively address what matters most in people's lives. And I think that this is an important backdrop to Bound Art Book Fair for a few reasons, and also a great backdrop, I think, to thinking about independent publishing and a lot of the, the ethics that people carry through their work. And we, I spoke to a few uh, exhibitors who really seem to embody this wanting to use their art for positive social change, which we'll get into in this episode. But it was also really great to see certain things highlighted at this fair that you don't always see. For example there was a program um, which was between two tables that was really highlighting work being done um, with artist books with students uh, with disabilities and we talk a little bit um, with one of these artists about this concept of the social model of disability so again this is about kind of lifting barriers for people um, And it was really great to see this addressed at a fair. It's not something that is often talked about, um, and it was just really inspiring to see. There were also uh, two exhibitions up at the Whitworth, which I think uh, fed into what people were thinking about. um, Two very timely exhibitions. One of the exhibitions is Material Power, Palestinian Embroidery. And I didn't really realize how the Whitworth has this specialty in showing textile arts. Palestinian embroidery, of course, is uh, some of the best when it comes to I- embroidery arts. And, and obviously a lot of exhibitors were showing their solidarity with Palestine in really beautiful ways. And having this in the space that we were sharing just felt really powerful through the weekend and was a reminder about the work that we're all doing as cultural producers and to keep these ideas of fighting for, for justice and human rights within our work. And was able to speak to this more directly with one of the interviews that I had this weekend. Another exhibition that was running concurrent to the fair was undefining queer, and some of the themes, especially the use of fashion media, as a more critical tool was used um, by the fair in sort of their selection of exhibitors. One of the things I really liked about being at this fair as a podcaster and having done book fairs for years, having also produced my own book fair several times, is that oftentimes at these events, the the best conversations and the things that you really take from it are these connections that you make with your peers around you and the sense of community at the same time sometimes i do question whether or not a fair is necessarily the the perfect place to do that when you're when everyone's trying to sell books and there's costs involved and it is kind of like this marketplace so being there as a podcaster and approaching creators, publishers, I was able to sort of have these conversations that were outside of the normal transactional thinking about there as a being there as a purchaser, or potential curator or someone who, um, you know, was thinking about artwork through a purely commercial lens. And at the same time, a lot of people come to these book fairs sort of with their newest work, the work that they're really excited about, the work that they know the best and are sort of ready to talk about it. So I was able to channel some of that energy into these conversations, which I had. What I wasn't expecting was that I would actually be on the move throughout the fair more, and the way I set up my table was kind of the podcast booth, which quickly I needed to kind of regroup. But I spoke to everyone from exhibitors to actually people who were just at the fair to browse. I got a chance to meet one of my newest podcast mentors. I know I did a little spiel about mentors on the last episode, who was there just to check things out, stop by my table. The first ever conversation we had together will be on this episode. And the way that this is going to work is I'm sort of parsing this into two episodes. So volume one, of the Bound Art Book Fair um, saga will be published here. And it actually is just going to be the first day of the fair. So Saturday the 25th, there's um, several interviews, including Amy Goff, Chris Neofitu, Molly Maltman, Thomas Stewart. And then the second episode will be day two, and that will feature... Rafael Melendez, Richard Phoenix, Jane Howard, and Tamsin Green. I would like to give a huge thank you to Lillian, Rob and Joe, the organizers of this fair, having been in the position of putting on fairs. I know how much work goes into coordinating all of the minutiae with all these exhibitors from from all over the place. And these interviews are slightly shorter than the, the than the real thing just for the sake of listenability, but there is an intention of perhaps having longer interviews published somewhere. Not exactly sure where that's going to be, but keep checking in and um, and that could potentially be a, a more for research purposes. But um, it was amazing to have these conversations. I learned so much and... And it was also great to meet people who were outside of my current network, um, was really thrown into having discussions with people about material that I'm not so familiar with, such as with the kind of fashion photography stuff, um, and also material that I was more f- familiar with but coming from a different place or and a publisher and artist with a different background so i'm really excited to be sharing this with you and we'll jump into day one of bound art book fair right now <music> We're here at the Whitworth Art Gallery Bound Art Book Fair, day number one. I am here with my neighbor in the art fair. (laughs) This is always a good person. By the end of the fair, you always become buddies. So I'm here with Amy (laughs) Goff.
2: Hello. Artist from
1: (laughs) Manchester. Yeah. (laughs) So, Amy, how long have you been making books?
2: Uh, Making books, maybe like maybe like five years on and off or something I can't really remember because after after art school I just kind of stopped doing like art art for a bit and I was like I'm gonna be like a comic book artist instead yeah so that's when I started doing like zines and stuff
1: did you um what did you study in art school
2: Uh, I did fine art.
1: Okay, cool. And you gravitated towards, like, comics and stuff like
2: that? Um, I mean, I did... I make video art, or I did, like, in uni. And then after that, I think I just... um, I guess I wanted to make something maybe that I could sell. And also, I moved in with two, like, illustrators who, like, made comic books and kind of got sucked into their, like, world of that a bit. It's
1: definitely a world...
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's so I feel like... Um, I mean, that didn't really last that long, to be honest. I made, like, a graphic novel, which wasn't that long and was quite, like, scrappy. Yeah. And, um, and then just made, like, these little zines alongside the rest of my practice, nice. basically. Just as a way of, like, doing something, like, quick and... Right. Sort of ...throw away in a way. That also makes, like, a little bit of cash here and there.
1: So you're you consider yourself like a performance artist video artist
2: uh not really performance i don't really like being in front of the camera i prefer okay. to be like behind, behind the it sort of thing yeah Interesting. Um, so yeah i like the editing process and i like kind of i guess like directing kind of but right. like um, it's never like a major production really it's like one person and a green screen usually right. or something okay. or like That's one cool. person and a stupid costume like yeah. in the woods or something like that. Cool, yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. are, are
1: your video pieces, do they tend to be like narrative or are they more kind of like on the abstract side?
2: Um, I've been kind of going more towards more narrative stuff recently. Not okay. like narrative, narrative, but like I'm trying to kind of, because it used to be way more abstract and more kind of like, I guess, conceptual um and not really, like, necessarily conveying, like... Not necessarily a readable narrative, like, being there sort of thing for the viewer. Right. Not so like I
1: a just, story arc
2: or I, anything. Yeah, like. I guess, but the the one that I've just been making recently um, that has this person in it, uh-huh. my, f- my friend... Um, uh, yeah, this is a great got one. That's a bit more of a, a narrative, kind of, but it's also kind of abstract and just, like...
1: So, we're looking at a zine called Stunt Double. Yeah. Do you want to take me through it?
2: <laughs> I can. So, it's kind of related to the film, but only, only really in that it's got, like, the character from the film on the cover. Um, but it's just, like... It's kind of just collected writing from, like, recently, basically. Okay. This. So, it's quite rough. It's, like... It's kind of just, like, little vignettes. They're all quite stupid, really, because, like...
1: Do you want to read us one?
2: I could just read you... I could read you a bit, yeah. Oh, yeah, let's, um,
1: let's have a, like a...
2: So, like... Okay, I'll just read you this bit. Um, I used to wash dishes. Now I watch. I watch for any slight movement. A bird I haven't seen before. A new dog in the neighborhood. A new car. There is a cock at the end of the road that cries each morning. It lives in an MOT garage. I don't know where it sleeps, on the back seat of a Mustang. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's one. <great>. bit. <laughs> but I keep get, I always like get really obsessed with like buildings that are like near to where I live. So like I used to live in Bristol, and it kind of happened there. Mm. So I made a film about like kind of tied to this like snooker club that was like on the road that I lived on.
1: Right. Um,
2: but. And I just made the film about this like empty swimming pool building that got closed like nearly 10 years ago, but now I've like set my sights on the MOT garage at the other (laughs) end of the road, so it's like, it's kind of just, I need to like try and focus for a bit longer. Yeah, so
1: so the writing (laughs) throughout this kind of has to do with that kind of like landscape around where you live and...
2: Partly, yeah. Yeah, so that that was beginning to be um, I actually did these drawings when I was in Lisbon though so that's kind of completely not where I live um,
1: but that's kind of what's great about like mm-hmm. artist books in a in a sense that like they don't um, they kind of allow you to meander right and like mm-hmm. weave through like multiple stories
2: exactly yeah. yeah that's what I like about zines really because it's not like it can be really eclectic and just like you know you can put it together just quickly and, like, it just feels quite low pressure. It's not, like, sort of, like, publishing a book or something. Right, it's just, right. like, you know, like, I just make these, like, in my bedroom or whatever. So right. it's kind of, like... <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, no one sees you making it and then you don't even have time to think about it, really, before someone buys it and right. then it's, like, has it. Do you know That's what I cool. mean? That's cool, yeah. Which is quite nice. How, really
1: many, cool. um, how many zines of your own work have you published, would you say... Or, like, yeah, what's your output looking like?
2: Um, I guess, like... There's see five, six... Probably, like, about ten, maybe. But some of them I've sort of disowned a bit just because they're, like, old and boring now. Right, they're, they're um, not
1: part of the oeuvre anymore. I guess. Really, yeah. I
2: mean, yeah. There are some that are very scrappy. And then I've sort of collaborated on a couple with my... Um, yeah a couple of friends that i lived with in bristol because mm. um, we did some kind of like we did some music stuff as well and kind of very much got sucked into a world together of like making music and like stupid videos and like zines and yeah kind of everything really came out of this like. So yeah, I guess scenes were part That's of that amazing. as well. It was fun.
1: Did you go to school in Bristol? Is that where you went to art college or
2: um, I started my degree um higher you right? Um, yeah, I've if someone comes up to buy one of your books, <laughs> yeah, you can completely ab- abandon the interview. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah. Um, so I started my degree in London. I went to Goldsmiths for a year. Oh, cool.
1: I went to Goldsmiths for my master's. Did actually. you? Yeah.
2: Oh. So I went there for a year and then I actually left okay. and moved to Bristol and I finished my degree there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I did a like an Erasmus thing oh. in Berlin as well. So I sort of went to three, like, unis in a way but um just for my ba oh cool which was nice sort of get the most like squeeze (laughs) the most out of it sort of thing um yeah
1: that's so cool well i want to see your video work too yeah How, how would how does one do you do you tend to show them in galleries um are they available online how do you like to uh disseminate video works into the world
2: yeah i've got um i've got like a vimeo which i have some full-length stuff on and then some like uh, little excerpts um but i i guess in galleries yeah i'd sort of do like i did a i had a little like solo show last about this time last year so i showed a film there so it's just like exhibitions really yeah yeah um, cool which is which is good or online but I've also done just like screenings or whatever so yeah, yeah. it's kind of nice um, doing events actually great. yeah
1: do you have anything coming up
2: um what do I have coming up I guess this but this has kind of happened <laughs> yeah, it, it's um, already over it hasn't so even over. started <laughs> um yeah, I, well I recently got a studio actually for the first time in like six years, oh, cool. which is cool, so yeah. um, I'm hoping to maybe do a show like, because there's a gallery attached, so I'm hoping maybe to do a show there next year, but um, it's not really set yet, but um, I'm kind of thinking about applying for like masters and oh, stuff, okay. yeah. so like I'm sort yeah. of figuring out a bit what I, what I want to do next in a yeah. way, but yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I, f- I feel like if you're in the moment to, ma- to do a master's, it could be, could be really helpful to get to kind of like help you build a new body of work or mm-hmm. iron out some of those questions. I think yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And, um, uh. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Amy. <laughs> thank that, you. It's just lovely been to be able to chat with you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. That was Amy Goff trusted table mate, neighbor at Bound Art Book Fair. Loved hanging out with Amy. She'd watch the table when I was cruising around. Not that I asked her to do that, but she was super nice. Hope to see you when I'm in Manchester again, Amy. The next publisher that I spoke to is Chris Neofitu, who's a Birmingham-based publisher who runs out of place books. He was introduced to me through Morley House, who met him at the last iteration of Bound Art Book Fair. And we spent some time specifically talking about a publication by an artist, Noan Jaff. Had an amazing conversation with Chris. Let's get into it. So um, so so yeah, can you tell me a bit about your practice, your press, and if you want to shout out anyone?
0: Yeah, I can do yeah. that. Yeah. So the the press is called Out of Place Books. Uh, and we make books about places okay yeah so they're all photographic books um the name actually comes from a we had like a a collective that never happened early on and and out of place is kind of a play on we all make work on places but also something about photographers always looking for that thing that kind of sits slightly out that says a bit yeah a bit more about what's going on Um, sure so, yeah, they're all books about places. And it's
1: so photography is a big thrust. Yeah, in your so they're work, yeah. all photographic books. Okay, yeah, cool. All photographic yeah. books.
0: There's sometimes other elements involved, but they're always photographic. Um, the other big thing that we kind of strive for is to make the books affordable. Right. Like I think the, like, expensive coffee table high-end photo book is covered. Like, I think yeah, there's enough yeah, people yeah, doing yeah. that. Um, so that's quite important to us. So... It's also helped the, the press have an identity because we're forced to use materials that or processes that are a bit cheaper. Sure. We yeah. sometimes mix like trade, soulless trade printing. Yeah, yeah, with yeah, the handmade elements right. you know, to help balance. And then the other element is the places that we choose to make work about um, or platform work about. And we've got a big focus on the Midlands. Okay. Which we feels I feel is quite underrepresented in art in general, never mind photography. Sure. Um there's not much work coming out of Birmingham and the Midlands that's yeah. photographic, especially like people like big institutions paying attention to. there's a little bit of a
1: scene in Nottingham,
0: right? Yes, yeah, yeah Nottingham's yeah. got probably of everywhere got the the biggest scene. And right. they've got a really good arts uni there as well, so that sure. helps. Yeah. Um, but still it's quite small for How interesting that whole area is, Mm, you know. Yeah, I I mean, when you've got Birmingham, you've got Stoke-on-Trent, you've got all these really interesting, like Nottingham, obviously, um, all these interesting post-industrial, you know, places. Um, So we focus on that, okay? Um, But also, not just UK and the Midlands, but other places that maybe, uh, like, there's a book about a really small area in France in the Loire Valley. I'm not sure how to pronounce. Mm. You know, obviously, the earthquakes thing is slightly different but it's still related to that area um, sure which obviously has the, the Kurdish element which is a slightly lesser known yeah, um, yeah. Aspect. Cyprus and, and
1: is that artist from the Midlands no he's from London okay he's from London yeah, yeah. because um, because I know that there, there's a lot of diaspora communities in the Midlands as well yeah um, yeah especially kind of like Middle East South Asia yeah um, so we did yeah, a book
0: um, about an allotment in Smedic. Which is just outside Birmingham, which was by a London photographer who focuses on like, the Punjabi like Sikh diaspora.
1: Is that this one this here? This book here. So okay, So cool.
0: dedicates all his work to that diaspora. And he made this piece about this small allotment community just outside of Birmingham.
1: I love this book.
0: Yeah. And we actually launched the book at the community center around the corner from the 11th oh that's amazing and all these guys from the book came. oh cool you know and their family and yeah. you know and things yeah. like that and we did a tour we had some odors and someone's mom made chai you know oh and that's so it great it was beautiful yeah it was busy and, and a lot of them didn't really But like, I guess I want to say they didn't really care that much like they just liked being there like they didn't
1: they were just hanging out. Yeah, yeah like exactly. they didn't really
0: understand necessarily like what we were doing with the book. But obviously, the diaspora, especially the younger ones, they were so in, like they felt so passionately about just being, I guess, noticed.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Like, um, well, I think that's what's kind of cool about artist books in, like, a community sense too, because I feel like a lot of the time, um, it, it's not like the the book. You know, you spend so much time thinking about the book, and then the launch really comes down to just like like people hanging out you yeah. know what I mean
0: yeah I think so yeah, yeah.
1: and like not to downplay the work but no. like that's part of the work and and like yeah even just to activate like that sense of community yeah. is cool yeah. with like having a book do that right and also
0: it's an opportunity to talk directly about what it is you're trying to do to people that are already interested yeah you know yeah. it's nice to have those and like a back and forth like hear what they think yeah know, sure which is which is quite fun. And we haven't done many launches over the years, but we've done, we launched like a book about Port Vale football club in the nineties, which is a Stoke based football team in London at the photographer's uh, cafe. Oh wow. Photobook oh yeah. Photo book cafe. Yeah. Cafe, yeah. So and are
1: you in London much for work and or no, like not to, that? To much. Do okay. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: Not anymore. I used to be, um, my girlfriend used to live there. So I used to come up and down a lot. Yeah. Then. Okay, cool. But yeah. So yeah, so all the books related to place. Try and spotlight people, artists, places that maybe slightly under the radar. Yeah. Uh,
1: actually, that that was one of the books I wanted to ask about. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, is the artist originally from Turkey or like was he personally affected by the earthquake? So
0: the artist is half Kurdish, half Palestinian, and he's been quite connected with uh, like Kurdish. Thank you. Um, Thank you. He's been quite connected with like. Kurdish, like charities and organisations for a long time, he's right. kind of worked with a number of organisations um, and because the areas that were f- affected were predominantly Kurdish, some of the organisations worked with in the past were out there to do so, he was he basically went out, he was, he was brought up in London but he went out there to help connect a number of um, organisations on the ground he was yeah, yeah, part of yeah. like a bigger network and help the very specifically Yeah. Um navigate the situation and stuff like that yeah so he's will have had like family connections things like that affected but obviously he grew up in England so yeah. sure yeah.
1: yeah I so I had a friend who went to um, Turkey to report on um, like immediate post-earthquake for the New York Times right and I was actually kind of like living with her at the time in London um, and it was yeah like kind of just filtering through her it was just like such like the devastation was like really intense mm. what i appreciate about the book actually is like while you know while it has this sort of like um showing you kind of like the aftermath of the earthquake it also seems to do it in a way that seems quite sensitive um it's it, there's not a lot of people yeah right it's just it's yeah. more kind of um and even the the white ink on on black paper is gives you a bit more of like an abstract sense of the yeah,
0: yeah. i mean Nawand is like a very like thoughtful photographer and we we talked about the book and the making of the book for a long 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 time so much so that there was a number of times that we weren't even going to make the book because we weren't sure it yeah. was the right thing to do, um, but right, we, right, yeah, yeah. So we spoke to a lot of different people. Um, Noan from the outset was very set on trying not to show faces, right, and to try and move away from like the typical imagery of like disaster, conflict, relief. or yeah, disaster. Yeah, yeah, like the images you expect to yeah. see. You know, the and faces, the and, and what is the artist's name again? Noan Jeff.
1: Noan Jeff. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, so. We spent a lot of time working on that. And also, we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a booklet in the front which um, contains an essay by a, a Kurdish academic called uh, Mashuk Kurt, who wrote um, quite early on after the earthquake, wrote an article in Le Monde about the politics of the situation and right. things. So he wrote a piece for this. And on top of that, um, Nawand created a, an index... Um, for the images, so not every image has a reference, but most of them do. And mm. I actually think that some of the power of this work is in that index, right? Because it's so matter of fact about you know moving from one place to another, what happened in certain places.
1: Sure. Yeah. yeah. The, the
0: cover image is a, a hand with some pistachios in it, and the the context of that image is that. Not everyone was easy to reach. They were driving around in like a 4x4 trying to get to certain people that were hard to reach. And one of the people they met was this guy who had basically lost everything, his farm, everything. And they brought him, you know, a package of aid, you know, certain things that he needed, sanitation, things like that. And this gentleman still felt that he had to give something back. And all he had was this handful of pistachios. That's so sweet. Yeah, Yeah. it's like amongst all of that, there's still this like underlying humanity you know yeah. that's why there's one or two images of like animals and like you know there's someone tenderly holding a cat and and it was kind of like uh, why I think sometimes that index is quite significant yeah um, so it's really these situations are really complex and it's hard to know how to comment on them in a meaningful way
1: right it's not just sort of like a doom scroll it's yes. more of like a meaningful yes. yeah. Right, yeah we hope that would be the case
0: yeah yeah and all the money's going to humanity as well yeah
1: yeah i I mean i think a lot of people are kind of asking similar questions now With how how to respond to the situation in gaza yeah exactly yeah um how to do it in a responsible way yeah um yeah like call to action but not be exploiting people's you know tragedy for um it, it because you mentioned the artist is uh, half Palestinian. Yes, is he is he also working um, on any projects now for like aid to Gaza or anything?
0: Yeah, he's um, well. Interestingly enough, the the organisation that we're, were uh, uh kind of using that book to help fund, and now actually at the Rafa Gate in Gaza. Sort oh of well moved Over there now. Okay. To, um, how
1: on, on the yeah. that's on the Egyptian side, but yes. Yeah yeah, Egyptian okay, side, yeah, 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 yeah. They they're in Egypt basically. Right, right. Like
0: they can't get into Gaza at the moment. Right. Maybe with the recent developments, it might be possible that they can get through. Um, but yeah. So, but um, Nawand himself um, is quite active in like the Palestinian movement here in the UK. Mm. Um, but he finds it it's quite difficult because the two different communities have like very different views on both those situations because
1: the kurdish community
0: it, i don't always support the palestinian kurdish, right right example. yeah 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 um, so it's quite interesting for him to be in the middle of that um, um but i know that he has plans to go to um uh palestine he wants to go back to the place his father was from okay well his father was in one of the refugee camps outside of palestine there's also a filmmaker his father mm. made like Documentaries and things about some of those famous Palestinian poets and things. Right, um, yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't remember all the details. Sure, yeah. But he was very politically active. Okay, um, yeah.
1: So, but um, you said your your background is Cypriot.
0: Yeah, right? I'm from Cy- My family are all from Cyprus originally, yeah. but I grew up here.
1: Right, um, right. But
0: I was raised very Cypriotly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what what does that look like? Um. So. I guess, like, the immediate connection. I mean, we, from a very young age, me and my siblings have always gone back to Cyprus. Right. You know, even when we were really small. And I've probably gone every year since as long as I can remember. Um, I spent a year there once, considered living there, but didn't stay. Um, but, like, my family are kind of part of the Cypriot community in the Midlands. Like, sure. Um, is
1: there a big Cypriot community yeah, in the Midlands?
0: Yeah, there is, yeah. yeah. So I think there's some... Um, uh, i think 20 15 20, of us maybe mm. like in the midlands um there's a really big community center there there's two actually one of them my grandfather was one of the founding members in like 1974 and it's oh, been wow. there ever since oh so, cool yeah so they've been there for a long so time yeah d-
1: deep roots in, yeah, in the kind community. of thing yeah, yeah, yeah that's cool
0: and like a very traditional cypriot british cypriot upbringing i grew up in a chip shop okay you know. <laughs> nice. i've actually yeah, got yeah. brown bags from my dad's chip shop here. oh that's cool does uh, he still run a chip shop yeah app? yeah oh, okay, 40 cool. years My parents, do you want to yeah. shout out the chip yeah jones's up? fish and chip shop in newport shropshire <laughs> probably the best fish and chips in the country um, i'll definitely remember to yeah, check yeah, that, yeah, that out yeah you <laughs> should, yeah you should yeah yeah my dad's been doing it for a long time <laughs> That's yeah. <so> cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah it's a big part of my upbringing i guess
1: yeah um as far as well it's interesting that you mentioned the the artist having you know being both palestinian and kurdish and sometimes there being um like a not conflict but like dueling feelings when it comes to support within yeah, those communities yeah. um, S- cyprus is obviously also yes kind of very divided right yes. um and it, I, I'm just wondering if you feel at all connected on that front with that artist, like yeah, for like, sure, yeah.
0: yeah, definitely. I think um, like the older I get and the more I've kind of uh, thought about this, like I think when I was young, it was very easy to be like misinformed on like the complexity of like our history as Cypriots, sure. you know, and, yeah. and the typical thing is like a lot of people refer themselves as um, uh, Greek okay or if they're turkish cypriot
1: do you speak um do you speak greek or yeah so turkish? we speak
0: um uh, uh what we call cypriot greek right yeah which Yeah. which is a quite it's very different to mainland uh, greek but me and chris laugh sometimes because i'll say things and he doesn't know what i'm yeah, saying right it's
1: like, it's, it's like a different language yeah, yeah there's
0: obviously a lot of shared words and things but it's it's different enough for if you were being really fair you could say it's a different language and the yeah. same with Turkish Cypriot we share a lot of like the sound of Turkish Cypriot to me I can I feel like I can understand it but I don't understand the words right do you know what right, I mean like, yeah, it's very yeah. similar we've got a lot more like Arabic inflections okay a lot of interesting instead yeah. of kurs, you know yeah, yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah. And so that's a part of it but because the Cypriot language isn't really recognised anywhere like, there's no written form of it really okay so they're sort of messing to try and do that now we've got all these elements like that make it difficult for us to form our identity. Mm. So that's one thing, I guess, is like um, that we kind of share with other places that have similar issues. But I think the other big one is that obviously the north of Cyprus is occupied by Turkey. So if you're a Turkish Cypriot and you live over there, you're under occupation. If you're like a Greek Cypriot who used to live there, you're not allowed to get your land back, so to speak, and stuff like that.
1: Do the two Cypriot communities uh come together at all in the UK or or is there still it's
0: it's changing my generation are probably the like last that were more kind of divided maybe yeah um, because pre like 64 i mean if you want to be really like historical about it pre-british but like, there wasn't really any issue sure <laughs> and that uh, tends to be a uh, yeah, a common, a common bread, theme yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and obviously a lot of Greek and Turkish-speaking Cypriots just lived together, you know, they went to each other's weddings, like, you know, they were my, um, I mean, one of the easiest ways to describe it, and this is like a mad thing that happened, and it also explains how the generations are different, um, there was a, um, there's a, there's a girl in London who does a podcast okay. about Cypriot stuff. Oh, no way. Yeah, that she interviews a lot of Cypriots from different backgrounds, projects, poets, writers, whatever and she did a, a podcast about Cypriot music and obviously I'm interested in music and I don't know that much about Cypriot music so I listened to it and the guy she interviewed, Jahit um, Turkish Cypriot was talking about Cypriot music and right at the beginning of the um, podcast he said his family are from a village called Tromulaksha which is the village that my family are from oh
1: no fucking way so
0: I was like I've got a message to this guy. It's a small village by the airport. It's not super well. I mean, it is well known because Cyprus is like a million people, you know? Yeah, no yeah, one, yeah, Everyone <laughs> knows everything, you know? Um, so I messaged him and I said, oh, you know, like we're from the same village. And we were joking. We're laughing. Uh, oh, it would be cool if we found out we knew each other and time passed. But eventually, and one day he asked me again, you know, do you think there's any chance our families know each other? So he told me who his granddad or great granddad. I don't remember exactly what his name was. And he sold ice cream in the village. Okay. So I mentioned this to my mom. Yeah. And this is all like, happening in real time now. She sends a message back to Cyprus, to the village, to one of the older generation that is still there. Yeah. She sends a voice note back that one of the younger artists had recorded one of my older artists saying. Yeah. And she says, yes, I remember this man. Said his name, you know, and remembers him selling ice cream and stuff. So I pass that on to, like, Jahit. And we're, like, all getting emotional, you know, like... Yeah. Because I heard... Cause even though he didn't understand like the Greek Cypriot dialect, he, he recognised his granddad's name straight away or Great yeah. And as time was passing and we were chatting a bit, um I had this thing in the back of my head that I wanted to say but I didn't say because I felt maybe it would feel tokenistic, but my granddad told me a story of the village. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He cool. told me a story about the village in 74 and just to cut the history a bit short um, there was basically a coup backed by the Greeks in Greece um, which then turned into an invasion so but during the coup which was kind of a right wing led thing mm. um, there was a lot of Greek Cypriot versus Turkish Cypriot fighting so a lot of the Greeks would round up the Turkish Cypriots in villages and kill them oh shit so yeah. in my village they rounded up this Turkish Cypriot family and um, And um, uh, they were going to kill them. But the orthodox priest, who was my granddad's cousin, stepped in front of the soldiers and said, if anyone's going to get killed, it's going to be me. No way. You have to let these people go. And I sort of mentioned to Jahit like a very condensed version of that story saying, you know, I know that in our village, the communities were close because of this story. And I I said, like, there was this priest that stood in the way of these uh, Turkish Cypriots being killed. And he messaged me. We were chatting on Instagram and the message he sent me immediately afterwards in capital letters was that was my family. Oh, my God. I was just in tears. Yeah, That's an amazing story. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, we have a younger Cypriot community that has Turkish speaking Cypriots, Greek speaking Cypriots, even that terms. That's the most widely used term now, but it doesn't. It's probably not the most correct either. Um, that we're all kind of more connected and like we don't see these boundaries. Yeah. That story... You're
1: only divided on language, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's just
0: like, you know, there's plenty of places in the world where... Right. You know, there's more than one language in one place. Sure, um, yeah. But the shared identity.
1: That's an incredible story. And I wonder... I wonder if something like that is something that you want to work through like in your work and in your publishing. Definitely, yeah. yeah.
0: It's it's something we've been talking about. And we actually worked on some stuff... Like, I ran a short festival. Like, it was a one day art event where we teamed up with a, a Maltese guy and we did like a Maltese and Cypriot diaspora oh, wow. art festival. Oh, yeah. It was part of like the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. Oh, no. Because obviously, we're quite anti Commonwealth, but we thought, let's take their money and do something that's a bit more like. Yeah. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, Jahit worked because he's a musician, made some music, and we. Made like a rep, like a track with a Maltese rapper called Ray. She's an amazing rapper. Oh wow! With a Turkish Cypriot vocal and a Turkish Cypriot like instrument, and me and my friend made some beats for him We produced this track together. It's That's like incredible! Yeah. Cypriot Maltese, oh you know. Oh my god! Like, I'd, lo- so <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. We've check already that started out. talking about things, and um, uh, so yeah, I think the point of the story really was that like no one heard that story before because the communities were so divided in the past no I don't think intentionally I just think with the aftermath of the war and stuff like people were literally di- displaced away from each other and in 74 there wasn't the connectivity we had now and stuff like that and you know a lot of communities longed to know their neighbours that were from the other right religion or language you know but there was no way of communicating but now we've got this and also the community is a bit closer um, yeah I definitely think we've moving towards a better yeah
1: well i'd love to to chat with you more about that yeah. i actually i feel like we should do a full episode <laughs> together
0: actually <laughs> yeah um but yeah it's a slightly off the topic of books so. no
1: no it's amazing actually I, I mean this is sort of like the important stuff that was chris neofitu out of place books what an incredible conversation i feel so grateful to have met chris at this fair That story about his grandfather's cousin in Cyprus is just incredible. I'm gonna be linking to some of those works that we spoke about in the show notes, as well as a link to Humanitet, which is the charity that we spoke about. Next up, we're gonna hear from Molly Maltman about a display that she curated at Bound Art Book Fair called The Queering Room. She co-curated this with Kit Heathershaw. So let's hear from Molly. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the project?
3: Yes, so the Queering Room is a traveling sort of um, portable exhibition that uh, the International Library of Fashion Research um, created last year and it began in a vitrine in a museum, in the National Museum in Oslo. And it was their acquisitions and their publications all about queer identity and representation in fashion um, that people could then use and look at and read. Um, and then they did it in their physical space uh, in the following November. And then Lillian, the director here, was one of my old tutors, and she asked if I wanted to do something here, whether it was sell books or whatever. Yeah. And I really wanted to make a reading room or like a reading table where sure, people can yeah. experience the book beyond the commercial space and then yeah then I just collaborated with the, the library.
1: With the library so it was a direct uh, collaboration with the International Library of Fashion Research? Yes yes so I've,
3: I've worked with them before I've done some editorial and curatorial activations with, with Elise who runs the library and then from there we just sort of have an ongoing dialogue and I just thought I'd reach out and see if she'd be interested in sort of loaning out some books. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, they have the most amazing collection. And, yeah, and then she did.
1: That's amazing. Um, where are they headquartered? Oslo. Oslo. Oslo, okay. Yeah. And so how did you approach, um, what was the process like of curating this iteration? Mm-hmm. What are some of the things you're thinking about? Yeah. yeah.
3: Um, so I'm wor- I work with my friend Kit. Um, and we sat down together had a lot of conversations about sort of what this would look like Um, I think for me like when I was thinking about a reading room again like I said before it was important that it was this space sort of separate from the commercial um, book fair that allowed people to sort of navigate and handle books and th- they, weren't, they were not pressured by the fact that oh this is x amount of money I shouldn't touch it I shouldn't like I can't afford it you know there's, there's some books that we have that are quite expensive um, but are really important books that people need to like look at and be able to touch and read and sure, feel yeah. and that's why I really love the idea of a reading room in general is this ability to connect with a book that you might not have been able to connect with before and have conversations that you might not have had So that was the initial concept and then it was just like fleshing it out and then obviously linking it to the exhibition here, Undefining Queer, and then just going through, yeah, the library's archive, picking out titles that I thought were relevant, um, also like to a northern audience as well, and then pulling into my of my own titles I have at home. Oh, amazing. Cool. Are you, a,
1: are you a collector? Do you consider yourself a yeah, collector? Yeah, I mean,
3: I'm 21, but... <laughs> as much I as you know, can I, be? As much as I can be, yeah. I think <laughs> yeah. I, I would say I'm a collector. I love... I have, like, a shoebox of stuff under the bed. have a little archive covers. Very fancy
1: art storage. Yeah. I have a little yeah. sideboard that's got <laughs>
3: some little bits and bobs in there. And yeah. then books, yeah. I mean... I love to collect books. That's
1: great. But it's, no, yeah. I, I think it's a smart idea because I think, um, like, book fairs are have become this important thing for publishers and um, kind of, like, to meet a lot of publishers, to see a lot mm. of work. But, yeah, there is that commercial aspect to it yeah. where, um, you know, you feel either pressured to buy or you're not engaging with something because you feel like you're going to leave the booth and and you know a lot of the conversations that we have across the table are about selling right Mm. so to have something that's kind of non-commercial within the fair or like does a fair necessarily have to be commercial Yeah, right I I think a
3: fair is great for a lot of reasons and I think it's nice that we're able to like gather in the community like there's people here from London and there's people here from other places too and it's nice that we can all gather and like speak and have conversations amongst the publishers and amongst people who are selling the books but also like a, there needs to be some sort of consideration for the person who's going to come to the fair. Like, how sure. can we yeah. like give them an experience that lasts much longer than oh, I saw a book that I couldn't buy, or you know, you sometimes feel quite rushed off your feet. And I think the idea of like a reading room, if it, I mean here it's not a room unfortunately, but if it were to be a room, it would mm-hmm. be a sort of space. It's a reading a
1: much nicer table than yeah, the rest it's a reading table. <laughs> but I think yeah. the,
3: the concept of like the of having a space. Where you don't feel that pressure. I think yeah, it's very important. Yeah. Um, RP, yeah.
1: how do you feel um, the reception has been so far? Pretty I mean, good. We're, we're like halfway through the day. Yeah. A little bit more. It's gotten
3: very busy like, this afternoon. Yeah. Um, and more people have been very like intrigued and engaged by it. Um, like we had some people lingering for about half an hour looking at all the books. Obviously, amazing. Some people are confused. They think, oh, can I buy this? And I'm like, yeah. no, you can't. Yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> but... I don't know. It's just nice to like have conversations about these books, about these artists. Yeah. And there's no pressure for them to, yeah, buy it.
1: Um, as far as the subject matter goes, mm. and some of the artists that you've included, how does that? Is this like part of like a longer held um, kind of thematic interest, uh, or in you the way, that this? yeah, white
3: paper this or the no,
1: re- th- no the 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 cu- the room the itself curation. yeah 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 well it's
3: the theme of queering and queer identity was presented because of the the exhibition that's in the whitworth right now which is undefining right. queer which explores queer representation art and photography so it was important that i made a link to that somewhat and then also like naturally that then meant that we were able to work with the Library of Fashion Research because they already had this this exhibition that right. they were willing to do a second iteration of. Um, but I mean,
1: it, in the fashion context, right? Yeah. Like, because there there's a, kind of like an emphasis on yeah, that. Yeah, so we have right? a lot of
3: like the history of gender and dress, the history yeah. of like the queer history of fashion. Um, but then we also just have like Wolfgang Tillmans' books, um, Book Magazine, Candy. Han archive. Um, Saw
1: so some Nan Golden. Nan Golden, right. yeah.
3: Cookie Mueller. Um, yeah, it's just, a great
1: selection. Yeah, it's it's
3: it's a, it's a wide selection, and also it's like I wanted to reflect, um, like my collection as well. Some books of of, of mine. Yeah. I just wanted to yeah. So cool.
1: Did you books. did you kind of did you think about the curation um, in harmony with? the works that are in the exhibition at the Whitworth, or did you more want to kind of echo it thematically?
3: At first, I was very, like, adamant that it was going to be a direct reflection of that. So I was looking at the books that the artists had made, but there wasn't that many. And I realized it's really quite difficult with the lack of budget that we had to then source all of those books. So I had to sort of, okay, take a step back and think about what is it I have that I do have access to and that I can... Pull from which was the library, so it became yeah more of a thematic yeah. link, um, which also I think makes it more broad. Like the exhibition is already here, people can see that, but this is like an extension of a fur- like a further reading of, of sure. those themes yeah, yeah, and those yeah. ideas and in a more vast way. Yeah, and more in relation to fashion.
1: Hey, tell me a little bit about you. Ah! <laughs>
3: Um, so do we my, not
1: know yet?
3: I mean, okay. I I know and I don't. Yeah. I think like so. My BA was in fashion photography, and I just graduated this year. Right. And then I quickly realized like when I came into my final year, I was like, I don't want to do fashion photography anymore. Like I just really fell out of love with it, and I just didn't really feel like my soul was in it. And not mm. that you know, I don't I don't want to sound. But I don't know. I didn't. My soul wasn't in it, and I don't want to make. I don't want to do work or anything like that where I don't feel like connected to it or it doesn't feel meaningful for me or for the people around me, whatever. Um, So in my final year, I made a book and that was when I really started to think about publishing as like where I want to exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, The book was about memory. And I think memory is a really like prevalent theme in whatever sort of space I'm in, whether it's publishing, whether it's like curation or photography, like, or writing. I wrote, like, I also write. Yeah. Um, it's always about memories and, like, the passing of time and trying to hold on to time. Mm. And I think, yeah, books and...
1: Yeah, books seem like the perfect kind yeah. of um, uh, place for you it's to It's a perfect kind of middle exist. space where yeah. all those
3: things can meet and exist in the same
0: yeah. terrain.
3: And, yeah, I think that's why I find a lot of freedom and a lot of like excitement around the book is because I can do so many things within that and I'm not bound by one bound.
1: Ooh. Oh, I see what <laughs> you did there.
3: I'm not bound by just like one thing and I yeah. think that's also yeah, I don't know, quite exciting, just not really, like people say what do you do and I'm like, I don't, wh- 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 which, which yeah. part should I tell you I about? Yeah, I mean,
1: I always struggle <laughs> with that too. Yeah. I mean, especially being here, I guess like as a podcast with Things I've published yeah, with other things. things yeah. yeah, I'm just like, don't even, don't even ask. Yeah. you know. But I think it's, it's, it's,
3: it, it makes sense because it all exists within the same world. Like it's all you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it's all come from the same brain. So it's all just, it's just you. Well, that's very way, nice. You know? yeah, yeah. I don't know.
1: Um, carrying it into maybe this new terrain mm. um, in a really interesting way. Yeah. You know, it's still kind of like using the fashion photography that you probably loved that probably drew you into that field mm-hmm. to begin with and yeah. able to kind of like celebrate what it's capable of doing, right? And uh, where it's, um, you know, just reading your kind of curatorial statement here, um, you know, I was thinking about, yeah, the how fashion does become like this expression of... Um, you know you're you're talking about like what's in what's out um, or like can fashion um, you know work against othering or Mm. you know like there's a lot of questions about like kind of community and stuff like that yeah
3: Yeah, I think I think it's I mean I say I don't want to be a fashion photographer and I don't but I think I can't ever say that I don't ever I can say I don't want to be in fashion but actually I will always be in fashion whether I choose to or not because it's so a part of how we all exist and it's such an important and like huge huge thing that impacts so many things whether we realize it or not and i think when when you're talking about identity and queer identity like it's such an important tool that allows people to express like their identity and their gender and their sexuality and however they feel like it is such a powerful tool and i think the reason why i grew quite cynical of it was I was witnessing it in a very sort of commercial way, which it, it, it makes you sad, you know, like yeah. you, you, you see how amazing that this, this tool can be, but then you're also seeing it being like used against you in a way.
1: Right, right. To
3: be this like consumer and made to feel completely terrible about yourself, but actually it's also a very important tool and means of expression. Sure.
1: I, yeah. I mean, it's not my expertise, mm-hmm. but I would say that, like, um, uh, thinking, thinking about how kind of big brands tend to, or, like, you could think about this in multiple kind mm-hmm. of creative industries uh, scenarios where a small community creates a culture which then becomes important to that scene or kind of starts to ripple out within mm. the, a broader creative community and then kind of gets consumed by bigger companies, yeah. kind of like like who will then leverage that aesthetic. Exactly. So I could see that happening probably in... Uh, in like image making that's happening in oh yeah fashion for sure. now. I mean yeah, yeah.
3: It, it it happens in all aspects of fashion whether that's the image whether that's the magazine whether that's design you know we're we're being told this is what you should be look, yeah. wow look like da, da 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 like it's all it's all so commercial but so th- with the reading room that I made yes. that I've created is the white paper in which I interviewed four artists. One of them is a good friend of mine, Evan, who is a photographer from Manchester. Yes. Um, Evan his work, Purdy. His work is fashion photography, but he sees fashion photography as a social language. Yeah. You know, it's, yes, fashion photography can be a form of commodification, commercial commercialization in that like, when I sell you clothes, but also, like, there's a whole other way that it can exist and that it can be a social language, a form of, like, dialogue yeah. Between both the, pho- the photographer and the subject, but also like it can be a documentation of a wider conversation that's happening, you know, at that given time.
1: Yeah. What's interesting, is, and I'm I'm looking at the white paper right in front of me, in case any listeners are interested. Yes. Um. The at the end at uh, at the end of the first question, uh, where Evan responds, maybe the viewer feels uncomfortable. Maybe they feel seen. I want people to see the expression that's possible without fashion beyond uh, or within fashion beyond commodification. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, there's
3: so much that can exist within a fashion image that sits outside of, commodi- of commercialization. Like, right. But I think, we're, I think the, the, the moment you think of a fashion image, you're thinking, okay, what are they wearing and what are they trying to sell me? Yeah, But actually, like, when... So Evan's documenting people who are just expressing themselves through clothing because there's no other way for them to express themselves. That's when it becomes really interesting because then you're actually seeing how this tool is allowing this person to feel and express what's inside.
1: Right, you know? right. Is it hard? I mean, the, I feel like the fashion industry is so... Um, is so built on commodity... Um And, it, like, it's almost hard to imagine it without, like, this uh, yeah. sense of commerce, yeah. right? Is that even possible? Is it something that, like... like <laughs> I wish or, I had the answer. <laughs> yeah. Like, or is there a way to... I don't know. I'm sure this gets talked about a lot, No, I think... Right? It, and it's
3: also something, something I'm really thinking about as well is... I, I also work at a magazine, and it's, it's great because I have a lot of like creative freedom there, and I don't really deal with that side of it, but also... I am aware that a magazine and the magazine industry in general, you know, it's all it's all a commodity, it's all commercial. Yeah. yeah. But I do think there is a potential. I mean there is, I've seen it with my eyes. Like I have friends who, you know, there is a potential for fashion to be this really productive and really meaningful like space mm. that sits so beyond commercialization. Right, right. But it's like how that person individually is able to navigate that if that makes sense, right. or like as as a as a group of people.
1: And funding needs to come from somewhere.
3: Yeah, things need to
1: be made somehow, right? I yeah,
3: mean. it's it's a confused. It's a difficult one to navigate because it is. You feel at odds against how much money there is in that business, and you try and separate yourself from that and build your own thing. And I think a lot. I think a lot of what I'm trying to say is that a lot of good things can be made without money
1: right this is true and that's also
3: the most exciting things that gets made and it's also those projects that then get sort of the bigger companies seeing like okay we need to do that and then then it becomes a a commercialization well even
1: in fashion I feel like there's a lot of um, there's a lot of trends which started because of um,
3: like subcultures, right? And yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, even if you think of denim, like the history of denim being sort of like a, like a working fabric, mm. right? And how now it's become like, I mean, everyone wears denim, yeah. right? Yeah. Um How th- there's kind of an embedded history there of class and yeah. There's a lot. Know. I
3: mean, there's a lot of histories in in yeah. throughout fashion, and yeah. I mean, it's not my. I'm not an expert expertise. This, yeah. It's not even my expertise. <laughs> like I. Yeah. I just write and hope <laughs> and dream and yeah, exist. <laughs>
1: well, this was a great project to see come to life yeah I'm so glad I was able to browse some of the titles i'm I love the white paper it's yeah, just a great the white little paper. publication do you think um do you think this has uh, a future trajectory is, is there any like or What's next for Molly Maltman? For me or for the white paper. I think uh, you know, both. Mm. Or like
3: Okay, so my dream and it's not you know, say, say the a dream is kind of like it makes something's like not gonna happen. It, this is gonna happen. <laughs> the goal.
1: Yeah, let's manifest it now. Is
3: that I will have a sort of space studio sort of sorts. Okay which is a blend of an archive and a publishing house. Wow. Where I make publications, but also present my collection of publications that I've collected. Also, like, I also collect like old film negatives yeah and like miscellaneous papers so this idea of like everyone can access this archive in general yeah yeah like an archive but also a space where th- new things are made
1: mm, so I think mm. that is what
3: an archive is it's not this dead it's, space right, it's also right. a space where Generative new things archive. are then created yeah. beyond yeah. that space
1: that's really smart yeah that's great no, w- we'll see. would it be in uh, ideally where would this place be where up north in, in, Ma- in Manny
3: no not, no. Uh, no, not in
2: Manchester.
3: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I would love it to be in London, but I know that it's like a super oversaturated space. But also maybe I could make something that's different and, and more...
1: Yeah, or maybe it has branches. I mean, let, let's think yeah, big here. Yeah, I don't hair. know.
3: I, I, this is too, these are too many things that I haven't thought about.
1: I like how I, I saw you post on Instagrams or something recently, and it was like, for northern creatives in London or something like that, like there is, is yeah, that, is that, that sounds about right. But I feel like that that is a that is a space. Yeah, for like sure. that is like an idea, right? Like you like working in London, but it is still like of a northern.
3: Yeah, I really like thing. that idea. Actually, yeah. I think we need to be more. I feel like we all do find each other. Though, yeah, somehow. yeah, yeah. All the northerners come together. I like <laughs> Am I
1: becoming a northerner? I don't know.
3: Are you? Yeah. No. I'm,
1: I, I, look, I'm well, surrounded, you, you by you surrounded by northerners all the be, time. You
3: can be a, an honorary An
1: honorary northerner. northerner. <laughs> I'll take Granted. it. I'll take it. Granted. Well, Molly, thanks so much for this interview. Thank you. I love the display. And, um, and also,
3: yeah. you know, everyone should go and have a look at the Fashion Research Library in Oslo because they have some beautiful books.
1: Yeah, and can people who are interested in this project access um, access anything online or...?
3: Um, I may upload the white paper, which has the interviews with Han Archive, Evan Purdy, Louis Venegas, and Jesse Glazard, um, and also an essay from Elise, the director of the yeah. library. I might upload that, but I don't know where I would do that.
1: Okay, so it yet. Needs a Home... It it needs a virtual home. Yeah,
3: maybe maybe it'll be on the website of yeah um, of the Bound. Library, But that's again, and will to discuss. Oh,
1: okay, great. But all right, well, yeah. people people can keep their eyes out. Keep your and, eyes out.
2: Yeah. And yeah. Cool.
1: Thanks, Molly. Thank you. That was great. That was Molly maltman Molly, thank you so much for taking the time for an interview. Your and kids' display is beautiful. Super gorge. I love how when I'm like, oh, am I an honorary northerner? Molly's just like, no. My next guest is Tommy Stewart, who I know through the New Dimension Network. And Tommy was at the book fair as a visitor. Tommy and I have been in touch recently because he's an incredible podcaster. And I'm super inspired by the work he's doing with the Mundial podcast. We sort of have this very similar interests of somewhere in between podcasting and zines about sports, and this is our first ever conversation, and it was just magic. So here is Tommy Stewart. All right, we're here at Bound Art Book Fair. We got Tommy Stew in the house. Tom Stewart is it, here. It's an
4: honor <laughs> to be here, my friend. We've been for the benefit of the listener. We've been talking for a while, yeah, and we've been meaning to. mean to meet up in London and. Well, I've literally met you about what five ten minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. You came and handed me this incredible uh, baby Grace, nineteen fourteen calendar. I mean, uh, I
1: couldn't think of a better collector for this. And um, all that. This honestly. is going.
4: This is going straight up on the wall. And <laughs> nice one. I will just pretend it's nineteen fourteen all, the, all time. the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. uh, I was about to sarcastically say things were better then, but maybe. It's not far uh, yeah. off the sort of times we're going through now.
1: Well, I think that's what's been interesting about, uh, uh, you know, about looking at the zine now and thinking about the, to me, the suffragette movement really feels like the just stop oil stuff. Yes. Like the uh, kind of like attacking artworks, the the kind of like protest in public spaces. Yes. And then the kind of outbreak of war as it's. I'm
4: wearing Manchester, which yeah. is where. Emmeline Pankhurst was from oh no way yeah yeah okay, it, cool. so if you probably about a mile from here in the center of town yeah in uh near the central library there is a wonderful statue of uh, Emily oh, no there. way!
1: yeah she's a monk you know i've only spent now today in manchester but are you from manchester originally
4: so i'm from shrewsbury originally okay. which is about an hour or so down the road yeah um and the reason I ended up in Manchester, well, I mean, I'm, a pl- I'm like an adopted Mancunian. Okay. I'm a Man United season ticket holder, right, my right. dad's, my dad raised me as a Man United fan. Uh, we, you know, it's, it's like basically the next small, you know, what it's like small town, next big city. Sure. Yeah. And a lot of my friends are here and it, I, don't get me wrong, I love London and I have to go there a lot for work I say have to like it's uh, you like know, it's a like, chore like it's, like ch- it's not clothes. a chore I love <laughs> going there for work right, at the yeah. moment but do, wanting to do journalism wanting to work in media it was yeah, two choices right. really in England it's Manchester or London sure, and I picked yeah. Manchester probably stupidly because of Man United right <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes you just need that little
1: thing to draw you there, yeah. and then then you get wrapped in. Well, I right? ended
4: up working in football, so okay. it
1: worked yeah, out well. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so tell me about um, your podcast. Like you've been on, so you've been on the cricket podcast. The it's called What About Cricket? Yes, yeah, yes. So that's a funny. That's a funny one. And I think they've only done like four episodes. Yes. But you do some some like heavy duty sports.
4: Podcasting yeah. too, yeah. So I was uh, I was a BBC journalist for okay. seven years.
1: And they're headquartered here. Exactly mostly, yeah. No. And yeah, that, yeah And that
4: was part of the reason I moved here okay, because cool. BBC Five Live was here, which is news and sport. Yeah. So I was a news journalist for about five years, um, which would have been between 2014, 2014 and nineteen and then I became a sports journalist. Yeah. Kinda of not it was kinda of by accident, although saying that I became really obsessed with the news and I became really desensitized by the news. Right. Do you remember that period of 2016, 17 when there was a lot of terrorist attacks happening in, in Europe?
1: Right. Was that the London Bridge? There was London, yeah.
4: Stockholm, uh, um, I think there was one in Germany. Yeah. So it was when all that was happening and I was having to, you know, it was part of my job, but I was having to sort of call up people whose, one of their family members had just been killed. And I was seeing images that the public didn't see. Right. And I was like, I've done four or five years of this. I love it. I love, love news journalism and I love radio and making radio. But once I realized I was desensitized and it was more about how are we going to do it as a news angle rather mm. than people actually dying. I was like, I need to get out of this. Sure. So right, I fell right. into sport, which I loved. And then the pandemic happened and i was freelance but you know basically just contracted by the bbc other than a bit of writing i did writing here and there for like the metro and things like that but all my shifts as the sport went over i've been doing sport about a year all the sport went overnight um so my shifts just went like all the next three months of work i had just went other than tail enders a cricket podcast that Uh, with Greg James who's like Radio 1 presenter Felix White used to be in a band called The Maccabees and Jimmy Anderson who's England's greatest ever bowler uh, of all time so that was the one bit of work I had left and that was like one, two shifts a week and that was in a podcast rather than live radio and I thought to myself when all my shifts kind of went overnight I was like I have to learn a new skill that like it's going to be difficult to get back into live radio at this point right so I just taught myself I started recording much like you've done recently yeah I just googled it went on YouTube looked up you know loads of just random guys in or girls in different countries just with weird random like 700 views on yeah. how to plug in your microphone stuff like that <laughs> and I just learned how to do it yeah I learned how to do it and I was like well podcasting in audio is clearly the way forward yeah so I started making my own which gathered a bit of steam and then people started coming to me for work and then yeah it's kind of gone from there and now I'm producing yeah. Three football podcasts and one cricket podcast. That's so cool. Which is yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is miles away from you know BBC News. Yeah. But I'm I'm
1: I'm happy. I actually feel like I enjoy the um, the commentary on sports almost more than like sport itself in a weird way. <laughs> like yes. Yes. I actually think like the way in which like you were talking like in a news setting, there's like kind of spin. or something. But, like, I kind of think the same... And not necessarily in a bad way, but the same thing goes for sport, right? Um, I think of, like, there's a couple uh, sports journalists in the States who are semi-famous. There was, like, a guy who used to be on ESPN um, who's kind of influential. I think Bob Costas is his name. Yes. Right? I know the guy. Uh, Yeah, of course you know him, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, and then also just when it comes to... I've been really inspired by, um, like, announcers calling games. Yeah. Um, On the episode where I do talk about Baby Grace, uh, we talk about um, Vince Scully, who used to call games for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it is just this kind of... um, It's this kind of, like, storytelling art form that... um, Yeah. Like, the drama of
4: sport is, like... Especially in... And, like, you know, my, my two main passions being football and cricket. Especially in cricket. Like, a lot of people would... A lot of people sync up their radio to the TV because the, the radio commentators are obviously having to visualise the whole thing. Right, interesting. And they're being a lot more poetic. Yeah. So they'll sync up their BBC radio with what's going on the TV and wow. mute, mute the TV. Yeah, 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 Because cricket commentary is such artistry. That's amazing, yeah. I... It's me almost
1: like alt text.
4: Yeah. Like alt text for an image where it's like you get exactly. into the granular it's exactly detail. That. Yeah. It's exactly that. And um, me and um, me and our mutual friend, Van Yeah, we both did the same journalism course. Okay. <laughs> we, <laughs> oh, no your way. Your face just is, okay. it looks like you're just going to laugh just at, at the mention <laughs> yeah. of his name. Saying, <laughs> Yeah. I love that boy. Yeah. But, yeah we, because we uh,
1: talked about his journalism course a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, so, how that, you know, might still influence the way he kind of, like, approaches things. But, yeah, and yeah.
4: It, it, it's... So, I remember we did a lecture or, or a seminar once on, uh, on commentary. And we got the... I think they got Yorkshire Radio's main sort of football commentator in. And he'd get, like, a match-up on YouTube. And he'd say, okay, you guys have a go at commentating over it. Yeah. And, oh, my God, it was so hard and then in the Monday Owl podcast which is my main sort of job now where yeah. I'm, I'm the producer of that and that's you know rising up it's in the top 20 in football podcasts in the UK oh, now wow. Holy shit. and we only Congrats, started six man. months ago yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's like it's you know we're getting more and more every week and it's really well rated and well reviewed and that we have a segment called Welcome to Volleywood and <laughs> we have to watch and one of our favourite volleys or the listeners suggest a volley which is do you know what a volley is um, reminds me so right. essentially when the ball's in the air yeah and it and the player hits it so sure. it's, a, it's a really difficult when technique. it's
1: kind of like going back and forth like, Yeah, so it'll yeah. be in the
4: air yeah, yeah. and the player will sort of watch it and you know shoot from usually from long distance okay yeah, so yeah. they're just beautiful sensational goals and we take turns on even though they're old goals and we've all seen them hundreds of times yeah. we take turns doing it <laughs> and, I, mate we have to do like because obviously it's it's a podcast not live we can do as many takes we want sure. it's so hard yeah the art uh, like i'm glad you said it because the artistry and the discipline of commentary yeah if, if you watch like documentaries about like some of the oldest football commentators in britain and stuff they still have they have for one game they'll have about Forty pages of handwritten notes. Wow! Like it's just—it's—it's just, yeah. it's, it's just the science and an art. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's—it's yeah. it's just insane. Yeah, and there's got to be certain things that are easier to commentate than others. No, like I, I imagine, like I don't know. I was in Leeds for something for work recently, and uh, I was in a hotel, and I wound up watching snooker
4: for like hours. Right? Hey, this is so funny. You say that. <laughs> Go on. F- finish <laughs> okay. what you're saying.
1: But. To me, that seems like a little bit, because there's less players, you know, moving, it seems like it boils down to more of like a statistical game, or like, you're able to just be like, oh, you know, I don't know if there's enough chalk on the thing. You know, you can kind of fill that dead air in different ways, where a game like Basketball um, soccer, uh, football. Yeah, I almost said soccer. Are you kidding me? <laughs> hey, don't. I would. It was never, originally called that. I would never be on the air with you <laughs> calling it soccer.
4: <laughs> don't be silly. Don't be silly. Um, no, but you're right about yeah. snooker because um, it's almost like it's such a different art. It's, it's. I guess it's more similar to cricket than football or basketball. Yeah, because it's picking your moments and the silences and. In radio, in live radio, you know the the number one rule is no dead air, no silence. Right, right. Whereas on, if it's visual, on TV, like with snooker, the commentator can say nothing for forty seconds. Right. Which is crazy when you compare that to radio. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, 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 that's insane. Um, but in a way, like less can be more. And for someone like me, who's like ADHD as fuck, like. <laughs> I don't know how I would be, say, a cricket or a snooker commentator, but it was so weird because me and my dad, I met my dad for lunch today, me and my brother, who you just met, and we were talking about exactly this, snooker commentary.
1: Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) We were just talking
4: about how, because it's proper, like, silent and northern and pronounced. Yeah, it's got to be northern. Yeah, it's got to be northern, yeah. Yeah. And there's this this brilliant uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan... Documentary, uh, who is the greatest snooker player of all time? Now I'm gonna check that out. It's just come on Amazon Prime. Whether you're into the sport or not, it's the story of like a torture genius. Yeah, he's yeah. an addict. He's he's. At, but the word genius is thrown around a lot these days. But when you watch this documentary, you're like, oh, that is a genius. I feel like
1: that's what genius is. Yeah, genuinely. And it, it, it's interesting that <clears throat> I think the reason why I, I like including um, kind of like sp- sport aesthetics or sport concepts into at least you know zines or or things that i'm attracted to like this alex lambert boxing print that i have is that i think it's a place that often gets overlooked for like certain creativity um you know and sometimes yeah it it takes just looking at a commentator yeah yeah especially in, in you know people interested in kind of this legacy of radio because podcasting is kind of like a legacy of radio I think
4: you know 100% 100% and Um, it's like 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 I said like I said before like I I mean I guess it's been going on for years like podcasting um you know Mark Maron yeah Mark Maron was always like my number one he's absolutely my podcasting hero yeah he's still mine
1: and he's still I think he's still the best. He was really good at radio too before. Oh yeah, he, was a, he did
4: political radio, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's tough because I, I suppose in podcasting you have you have an advantage in that you can you can edit and things like that. But also, I'm trying to make a really Extenuated sort of sport comparison, but okay. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting okay.
1: there. Okay, I'm I'm right with
4: you. <laughs> I'm with you. Still. Okay, let's yeah. take people on a journey. Yeah, here. Exactly. Right. So, I think with podcasting as a po- like radio would be more like a basketball or a football or even boxing. Yeah, and it's live and it's instinctive, but obviously, you know, there's the whole ten thousand hours practice and stuff, and but you learn those instincts just from practice and I was not a great I was never a great radio producer I would never say like Mm -hmm. booking things on the day or breaking news story and having to get guests yeah I found very stressful interesting that would stress
1: me out too Yeah. yeah
4: but whereas podcasting and people a lot of radio producers would probably say oh it's easier but for me yeah sure I like the time I like I like Having a few days to edit, I like. You know, I still have deadlines, but I like being able to script it and sure. take out the things that will have gone wrong. Take out, you know, if someone said the sea bomb too many times, yeah, which, which yeah. often happens.
1: Maybe in a sports circle that tends. To yeah, my yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
4: But it's more like. Well, it's more like test cricket, which is played over five days. Right. Or it's more like a game of snooker. It's more interesting there's more construct to it there's more layers there's more textures yeah. it's more like a it's more like a painting rather than this sort of intuition which suits me more because i i i'm not saying one is a more difficult skill yeah. than the other you know i've done podcasting for 3 4 years and i i did radio for 5 or 6 but already i know and the way my career's gone that mm-hmm. i'm a better podcast producer than i ever was a radio producer right. and i think that's because you know I write, I write poetry I, I write songs I'm in a band and stuff that, that whole cool. time yeah. thing and be able to con- like have a vision of what I want and then by the end of it to be like that's it that's how it should sound yeah, yeah. and collaborating with other people etc rather than just like oh my god the Prime Minister's just died yeah in a in a helicopter accident in the Sahara Desert. Right. We yep. have to get someone on to talk about sure. it. Sure, yeah, yeah. Know.
1: And processing, processing emotion almost in real time exactly, with yeah. radio. I actually think, um, not, to, not to bring it full circle to the context in which we're in today, but to me I actually think the analogy is similar to an artist book. Yeah. Um, and maybe actually radio might be more like painting, because I think, uh, you know, painting's immediate. Right. You know, it's um, yeah. it's that, like, primacy of motion and, and where actually with an artist book you have time to edit. That's true. Right? You know, and you have time to take it to press. You have time to look at it. Um, I mean, you know, for the last month I kind of took, like, a little bit um, of, like, a break with the podcast just thinking, like, um you know it's still in its early stages and also just thinking like how to move forward how to plan a bit which yeah i couldn't do if i was you know in in the fast-paced radio thing um but at the same time i'm also thinking this is a little bit of a crazy idea and i don't know if anybody's done this but because i'm always like you can find the podcast wherever you get your podcast right but then, isn't there, and there's a word for this when people broadcast over, there's like a, uh, a range of uh, bandwidth waves right. that you can just broad. you're allowed to broadcast over, but you need like a special receiver. Like um, pirate well, radio, yeah, sort it's, of. Yeah, it's kind of like pirate radio, but there's like a name, it's like amateur radio. Okay. And there are things that, um, so I kind of thought, like, wouldn't it be interesting to just like, Put the podcast out there and have like you know weird yes. guys with like
4: crazy receivers just yes. be finding it on the radio is this a so, is this a proposition i think is this a project we're gonna maybe. do maybe <laughs> have we just signed up to something we
1: just communicate with each other over radio waves <laughs> and ben gold is the only person yeah, like, listening exactly and he's just like ah, it's pretty good <laughs> Cool man. Well, thanks so much for stopping by. It was really great to meet you're you. You're very it's good, It's like man. our first you're, you're, conversation is actually. In I know. The I'm, I'm sorry. I've right.
4: not actually. I've been so when I'm when I'm in London, it's so like in and out. But oh
1: no no, it's all good. We, we will have a yeah, proper yeah. coffee. And you're hanging out tonight, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
4: Okay. Great. I don't drink, but I'm out all night.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm on I'm on your wavelength too. I mean, I call myself sober adjacent now. Yeah. But it's like I'm getting there. Good. Uh, cool. uh, yeah, I liked your uh, talking about, like, uh, Lucky Saint.
4: Yes. Dude, that's shit. Mate. It's like you don't There's even a... need... No, no. But yeah. I, 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 a great thing, I actually, with my sobriety, and this is good advice for anyone listening, I heard it, funnily enough, on a podcast, which was not long after, I'd first, maybe a year after I first become a, a podcast producer, my girlfriend at the time said, uh adam buxton's podcast uh adam buxton's one of the best he had lee mack on british comedian yeah and he stopped drinking and he said go to the bar the the best drink is friday night after work isn't it you know like that first pint he said just try it with a non-alcoholic beer that that feeling is psychological mainly for 20 minutes and then you'll be fine it kind of does the trick yeah yeah. And then you see people around you being idiots, you're like, I made the right decision. And you're like, great, I'm gonna wake up and feel great tomorrow. Yeah. Smug. Yeah.
1: Cool man, well thanks so much. Thank you, brother. That was volume one of the Bound Art Book Fair edition of Into the Paint Podcast. Special thanks to Amy, Chris, Molly, and Tommy for your interviews. Shout out again to Lillian, Rob and Joe for organizing the fair and for having me there as a podcast. Remember to follow us on Instagram. And if you enjoy this podcast, please do share with your network. Into the Paint is available wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in and more to come soon.